Let's open our Bibles this morning to Ezra chapter 10. We'll read verses 9 through 15, but we'll focus on verse 15 this morning of Ezra chapter 10. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled at Jerusalem within the three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square before the house of God, trembling because of this matter and the heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have been unfaithful and have married foreign wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore, make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do His will, and separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign wives. Then all the assembly replied with a loud voice, That is right. As you have said, so it is our duty to do. But there are many people. It is the rainy season and we're not able to stand in the open. Nor can the task be done in one or two days, for we have transgressed greatly in this matter. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly and let all those in our cities who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each city, until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter is turned away from us. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this, with Meshullam and Shabbatai the Levite supporting them. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to the time where we consider Your Word in depth. I pray that our hearts would be focused entirely and only on You. That the distraction of yesterday, the anticipation of tomorrow, would be dimmed as we consider You as we fellowship with Your Spirit, as we read Your Word, as we contemplate Your commandments. And so God, let us in this hour make an extra effort to seek only You to hear only Your Word. It is in the name of Jesus Christ, our great High Priest, we pray. Amen. You will recall that all the Jewish men had been summoned to Jerusalem in the early part of December to meet regarding the great sin of the people. Many were guilty of marrying pagans, people who did not worship God. They had done this against the law of God, even though they knew what His commandments were. They had done this sin even though they had the examples from their own kings in the past, whose hearts had been turned away from God by their pagan wives. Solomon and Ahab stood large in their memory. But the warnings of their reigns and the damage it did to Israel weren't enough to stop them from going in exactly the same way. Sin is like that. 
No matter how many people we see fall in sin, no matter how many lives we see destroyed by sin, no matter how many loved ones we watch as they are consumed by sin, many of us still listen to the lie that you can handle it. That sin won't take you down. That you are in control of your sin. And we believe it all the way until we ourselves become a cautionary tale for someone else who might well fail to learn from our errors. But you will recall that Ezra, under the leadership of God through His law, did not stand quietly and watch his countrymen falling into this grievous sin. He prayed, he fasted, and God sent him the answer through the rebuke of Shechaniah. Dissolve these illegitimate marriages. And once this proposal was made, Ezra recognized its rightness and put the question to the temple leaders who were there. And to a man, they agreed that this was the solution that honored God and preserved His people. And so this very meeting that we read about this morning was called and in three days every Jewish man in Judah was sitting in the heavy rain awaiting Ezra's announcement. Ezra stood before the people and largely repeated his own prayers and Shechaniah's proposal. These false marriages must be dissolved And the people all agreed that this was the right solution. But diligence was needed in in determining who was legitimately married to someone who worshipped God and who was indeed paired up with an idolater. But so because the rate of intermarriage with the idolaters was so high, more time was needed to investigate all the specific circumstances to judge whether this was a legitimate union blessed by God or a sinful union cursed by God that must be dissolved completely. And that brings us to verse 15 this morning, which is very tricky to parse. It says, Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this with Meshullam and Shabbatai the Levite supporting them. The first question we have to look at, really the primary question we have to consider, is what they were opposing. Did they oppose the dissolution of the marriages themselves? Or did they oppose the delay suggested by the people and accepted by Ezra? Now we know almost nothing about these four men. The names are actually rather common. Maybe not in our day. I don't know any Jazias, but in that day that was a fairly common name. We might see these names elsewhere, but the name was so common it could refer to somebody else. Jonathan and Jazia are not mentioned anywhere else in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. While there are other times in these books that Meshullam and Shabbatai are mentioned, many times we don't know if they are the same persons 
that are standing here today. Meshullam is mentioned here. He seems to be one of the leading men that Ezra dispatched to Iddo before they left Babylon. You recall as they camped on the banks and Ezra started looking at the people who were going back to Judah. He looked around and said, we have no Levites. And so Meshullam, along with others, in Ezra 8.16 we read, So I sent for Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, that's the second one, Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshullam, leading men, and for Joarib and Elnathan, teachers. That's three Elnathans. But we have Meshullam in that list, and we likely see him again in Nehemiah 8.4 as a supporter of Ezra and his teaching. And it seems likely to me, due to, the important, due to his importance to Ezra, that this is why he is mentioned by name here as someone who opposed Ezra. Now there is another name, another mention of the name Meshullam in the list of the people who had married pagan wives. Chapter, eight verse, or chapter uh, 10, verse 29. But this seems unlikely to be the same man because Meshullam had only been in country, as it were, for about six months. And so it doesn't seem that there would be enough time for him to court and marry an idolater of the land. And so for that reason, I think that 1029 is a completely different Meshullam, although there are some commentators who might disagree. Then looking on to Shabbatai, we do find two mentions of Shabbatai the Levite in Nehemiah. In Nehemiah 8.7, Shabbatai the Levite is mentioned as a secondary teacher of the law working under Ezra. And then we also see he is likely mentioned in Nehemiah 11.16 as a later political leader for the Levites. And so we can see it's quite likely that these men who we see standing in opposition were among the people who were trusted by Ezra. I think that that is why these are mentioned by name. And so we come back to the question, what were they opposing? And while it's not specifically stated, the side that they stood in opposition to, whether they opposed Ezra or they opposed the delay in the judgment, I'd like to spend our time this morning examining what it would mean to oppose either side. And I would suggest to you that either choice would be found to oppose the grace of God. To understand what is at stake in this opposition, I would suggest you consider if you would have opposition to this full plan of Ezra. You see, the first possibility is that they truly opposed Ezra in advocating the dissolution of these marriages. This is the view that many commentators have, particularly those who personally view the divorces of Ezra's day as a difficulty growing out of legalism. It is actually a very modern idea, although we do see it even in commentaries dating back four or five hundred years. But the modern commentators have grasped onto that, and they said that commanding these divorces 
couldn't have been what God meant. Dissolving these marriages couldn't possibly be God's will. After all, they reason, if God hates divorce, they would be right to oppose Ezra. Except God's Word does not tell us that they should be commended in opposing Ezra. But in doing so, that would place them firmly opposed to God's law, wouldn't it? Because as far as the Scriptures are concerned, there really is no grandfather clause that allows sin so long as you've been practicing it for a long time. God doesn't say, oh, well, that's just the way they are. God doesn't say, well, you know, yes, it's sinful, but I'm just going to let them go ahead and do it. And there is no ambiguity in God's law. These relationships with the idolaters of the land, were sinful. Full stop. Now we see many in our day who might stand in the same place opposing these dissolutions of these marriages for many reasons. One reason may be that we or someone we love is trapped in this sin and we don't want to see the pain it would cause to be freed of it. Certainly, if any of these four men had relatives who had married idolaters, they might have come to think of that pagan wife as fundamentally a good person. I've heard many people described that way. He isn't a Christian, but he's a really great guy. I'll freely confess that there are some unbelievers who have a strong moral code that they follow whose ethics put many believers to shame. But it is a different question altogether whether they are good. Romans 3, 12 and 18 tells us, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. God did not put a loophole in His law. If they're a good person, it's okay to marry them. What God's law said, what His standard was, is if that person is my person, then you may marry. Another reason we might see people opposing this plan to divorce these idolatrous wives is much more specific to today than I think it was even in their day. Because we think very often that we are more enlightened than the God of Scripture. You see it all the time. There are organizations that call themselves churches and people who call themselves Christians who would repudiate God's commandments as being out of step with modern thinking and modern morals. It is in that light quite easy to see someone who would stand up and declare their superior morality because they could not they would not sacrifice these marriages on the basis simply of God's law. 
We see people stand up all the time and proclaim their new virtue, a virtue that is not found in Scripture. But no matter the reason, if someone did oppose the commandments of God on any basis, they would stand in direct opposition to God and to His grace. Not just against God and His judgment, but in, the denying, but in denying the sinfulness of these sins, the sinner would never be called to repentance at all. To deny the existence of sin is to deny the need for grace. It denies the need of repentance. It denies the need of faith. And ultimately, it denies the need of a Savior. Believer, if someone asks you if a sinful action is sinful, answer boldly from the authority of Scripture, but never stop just there with the sinfulness of the sin. Because that is your opportunity to bring them to God's grace through Jesus Christ. Our discussion of sin should never end simply with the judgment of God. It should always end with the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ who came to free them from their sin, who came to save them. Because we can scream the law at the top of our lungs, but unless we are screaming grace more loudly, we oppose God's grace. The other possibility for these men around Ezra is that they opposed waiting for this sin to end. Maybe they were in full agreement that the divorces needed to happen, that these situations needed to be broken up, but they were impatient. Why should we wait months when it could be simply done today? And to be transparent with you, I think that is exactly what these men opposed. Because they were leading men. They were teachers of the law. They were trusted allies of Ezra. And so it would be easy for them to view the delay in carrying out these divorces as unfaithfulness or needless coddling. These men wanted to see the end of this sin once and for all. And they would stomach no delays in getting to the bottom of it. Time, they might reason, was against them. God was already angry with this sin. And soon, if they did not repent, if they did not put this sin away, God would judge them. These men would have been led entirely by their zeal for God and for His law. What could possibly be wrong with that? You see, there's a danger in zeal that we neglect grace and mercy and love. This It's why God is described so often as long-suffering. He endures the sin of people far longer 
than we might. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is long-suffering toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But in ourselves, compromised by sin, compromised by the flesh, we careen wildly between zeal and love, justice and mercy, often considering these things mutually exclusive. After all, how can we be zealous if we are slow to bring down the judgment? Paul, in describing his state before meeting Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus, tells the Philippians in chapter 3, verses 4 and following, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor, of the church as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless. Those are the very things that Paul declares are dung, are garbage. Zeal without love is legalism. And he tells the Galatian church, You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism. How I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. That's how he begins the book of Galatians, chapter 1 and verse 13. He says, this is where I came from. I was zealous. I was more zealous than anybody I knew. Nobody was going off to Damascus to put these Christians into prison. I did that. And I was wrong. Because zeal had No love. I think that these men in today's passage could easily, in their zeal for the law of God, wanted to rush through the proceedings to get to the verdict. It would be a simple matter to simply dissolve all these marriages to anyone who is not ethnically Jewish to declare them null and void, and to declare anyone who persisted in that state cast out of Israel. And it is for that very reason that these men would likewise be opposing the grace of God. Because first, they would try to accomplish through legal channels what should be accomplished through repentance. One of the most, one of the important scriptures with regard to a sinful brother is found in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17. I've heard this used as a club 
to beat people up with. It says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. But if he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Now there's nothing wrong with what what Jesus is telling us here. But note the slow, methodical process Jesus is describing here. A private conversation. And then an intimate conversation with just a few. And only then a recourse to the church. Not through gossip, but in bringing the church together. Each step of this process, often called the Matthew 18 process, is aimed at one single thing. It is decidedly not punishment. Each step in this process is a call to repentance. Every single step. The final words of the epistle of James carries a message of hope for those who would seek to restore a brother or a sister. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and turns him back, and one turns him back, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Our goal is not the condemnation of the world. Our goal is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. In John 3.17, Jesus even describes His role. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. If these men had gotten their way and declared a summary judgment against all who had married non-Jewish women, the law would have exacted its penalty. But the grace of God would never have been experienced through repentance. When Peter preached his second sermon in the book of Acts, he spoke of the great sin of the people who had rejected Jesus Christ, who had seen Him publicly crucified. But then he quickly declared to them in Acts chapter 3, verse 18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. Therefore repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped away, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Peter wasn't standing up pointing to him and saying, You crucified Jesus! He said God knew Jesus was going to be crucified. It was His plan all along. And now He is holding His hand out to you and saying, come to Me. Repent. Be refreshed. 
be part of my family through that sacrifice. Because the law of God is always meant to bring us to repentance. The second reason I see that these men would be found, be found opposing the grace of God is this. We see in this 10th chapter of Ezra the declaration of all the people of their guilt and their intention to leave that sin behind. And I would remind you that only God can make that kind of revival, that level of renewal happen. They saw the men of Israel trembling because of the matter, but they perceived only that they trembled because of the rain. God saw their hearts. His Spirit was moving in their hearts to bring them to repentance. They were brought to the law of God. They were brought to God through the prayers, through the fasting, through the teaching of Ezra. And it broke their hearts. And yet these four men stood and thought to themselves, it's just because of the rain. They suspected the work of God in the people. They won't stick with it. They won't go all the way. Their repentance is only a surface thing. And Christian, I see a lot of folks who look at someone who has a history of sinful behavior when they repent too many Christians look at them and they say, well, I would wonder how long that's going to last. Instead of coming along beside them, instead of encouraging them, instead of befriending them, they stand at arm's reach because they don't want to get dragged down with them. This church is not a country club. It is a place where hurting people come to be healed. If we will not look even upon a sinner who has sinned against us with a heart of love, with a heart of compassion, we ourselves will always be out of step with God's grace. These men didn't want to wait for even a month to see if there was truly sin in the lives of many of these people. They had already made their judgment. They thought they knew the answer. And in many cases, they were wrong. We'll see if God is willing in a couple weeks, the list of those that were found to truly be in sin. And while it is a long list, it's not nearly as long as it could have been. We have to be careful in making our own judgments 
even in situations where something seems black and white. God's justice never outruns His perfect knowledge. And so we can afford the time, the grace, the mercy, the compassion to fully understand before we judge. I think that is the meaning that Jesus gives us in Matthew 7.1. Do not judge, lest you be judged. For in the same measure that you judge, it will be judged to you. Why do you seek to take the splinter out of your brother's eye when there's a log in your own? It is so simple to measure differently. To think our sins, the sins of those we love, are minor while the sins of someone we may just not like, much bigger. Someone, the sins of someone who has offended us in the past, the sins of someone we always knew was going to go back. That's kind of the committee I see here in Ezra, standing back and saying, why would you give them an opportunity to repent? Why would you give them an opportunity to explain their situation? We know they're guilty. Just move on. We must be careful that we, ourselves, in our zeal, do not oppose the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father, let us never outrun your compassion. In our zeal to get to the end, in our zeal to rush to judgment, remind us through your Spirit of the compassion the love, the mercy, the grace that is given through Jesus Christ. And even if we must call sin out, and there are times where we must call sin out, even in those times, let us do it to bring forth repentance. to distribute your grace and your mercy to someone who has forgotten that or has decided to take advantage of it. You did not send your Son into the world to die on the cross simply to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. Let the world recognize us 
by our love, which is born from you, delivered by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the righteous Lamb of God. Amen.